Good morning, brothers and sisters. This is now the sixth Lord's Day that we have been unable to gather together. We are praying for the Lord's mercy to bring this trial to an end soon. And the elders want you to know that we are continuing to seek the Lord's wisdom on how to lead throughout this uh, ordeal. I thank you for praying for us. So many of you have said that you're praying for us. Thank you. Please know that we're also uh, praying for you. I also want to encourage you that the Lord is at work in the midst of this uh, trial. He is bearing good fruit in our lives and in our church, and so we're thankful for that. But we are also very, very ready for the day when we can gather together again uh, soon, and we do pray that it would be soon by the Lord's mercy. This morning we're continuing on in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and today we come to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. So please take your copy of God's Word and follow along with me as we read. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. One day, Jesus got into a boat with His disciples and said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, He fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we do give You thanks today on this Lord's Day that You have been merciful and gracious to Your people in giving them new life in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that You would help us now to hear the Word of God uh, with believing hearts, And we pray, God, that even though we are separated uh, from one another physically, uh, that the Word of God would still uh, do its work among us, even in these unusual days. Father, help us now. I pray for Your grace to speak faithfully and truthfully from the Scriptures. And I pray, God, that You would please uh, build up our hearts in the faith through Your Word this morning. And we pray, God, in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. I'm not really a religious person, but I don't know who else to turn to but God. That is what a young man posted recently on the website of the Billy Graham Association. I'm not really a religious person, but I don't know who else to turn to but God. You can guess the reason for the young man's confession. It's the same reason that has turned all of life upside down. The young man was afraid of the coronavirus pandemic. He looked out at a world unsettled and shaken, and the young man knew he could not weather this storm on his own. His fear became a wake-up call. You can imagine what it was like just a few weeks ago. This young man was probably going through his life like most other people, oblivious to God and not thinking about the reality of death and eternity. It's easy to ignore eternity when everything is calm, isn't it? But when that calm is broken, when that ease of life is shaken, 
that's when the fear creeps in. Where do, where do formerly content modern people turn when that happens? Well, they apparently turn to the internet. Websites like the Billy Graham Association are reporting tremendous spikes in traffic and interaction. People are looking for something in this crisis. They're looking for something solid in the midst of this ordeal. And though our culture has moved far beyond our Christian heritage, people cannot escape what is hardwired into their hearts. They cannot escape the thought that God is where they ought to turn. That God provides some certainty when everything else is shaken. What does all this mean for our culture? Well, we, we can't know for sure at this point. Does this young man represent the beginning of an awakening in our culture where people are genuinely open to the things of God and to the Gospel? Or does this young man picture a passing convenience, an interest not in God, but in what God might do for me? Which option is more likely? Well, we can't know, friends, and we won't know for some time. But even so, we should recognize that on some level, this crisis is confronting everyone with the fragility of life. It is confronting people with the things we'd rather ignore. Things like death and eternity and the state of our souls before the Creator. Friends, that's the surprising value of a crisis. It reveals people's hearts, particularly things we prefer to overlook. And it forces us to reckon with reality. Our lives are short. Our existence is fragile. The peace we enjoy does rest on a knife's edge. And in an instant, all of that can vanish. In an instant, the storm can crash down upon us, and then where will we turn? That's the question many people like that young man are wrestling with. Where will we turn? And in God's providence, brothers and sisters, our passage today meets us precisely where we are at this moment in life. I don't know how the Billy Graham Association responded to that young man's statement, but there are few places in Scripture that better answer his question than our passage this morning. Quite literally, our text today shows the Lord Jesus' response to the storm. Of course, what Jesus does in this passage is a historical fact. He's not responding to a metaphorical storm. And this is certainly no myth that Luke invented to teach a nice moral lesson. This is the stuff of flesh and blood history, friends. The winds and the waves were real, and Jesus' response was real too. This is no myth. This is no fable. It's history. And that is exactly why this passage is so valuable to the church today. Myths and fables may excite the mind, but they can't steady the heart when things are unraveling. What Luke recounts in this text is the stuff of real life, and that's why we should listen. Here we find the Lord Jesus in the storm, and by listening to His Word, we can also find His grace for our lives as well. Before we look at the details of the text, I do want to give you a brief overview of where we are in Luke's Gospel. 
We've just finished an extended section that focused on the need to faithfully hear God's Word. You may remember this back at the start of chapter 8, verse 1 of Luke chapter 8. And the refrain of, of that section over and over was, be careful then how you hear. That priority was so urgent, you'll remember, that Jesus said His mother and His brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. Be careful how you hear. And as we come to the text this morning, Luke's emphasis though shifts somewhat. Today's passage is the beginning of a series of miracle stories. Now Luke tends to group miracle stories together in his Gospel account, and and this section is no different. The next three passages, from verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, the next three passages all flow together. It's a series of miracle stories. And what makes this series of miracles unique is how instructive they are to Jesus' disciples. Through these miracles, Jesus reveals more of His identity, more of His power, and with that revelation comes further instruction to the disciples on what it means to follow the Lord. Those two purposes, revelation and instruction, shape the remainder of Luke chapter 8. Jesus is revealing more of His identity, more of His power, and that revelation in turn instructs us, it teaches us on what it means to follow Him. Revelation and instruction. So, with that overview in mind, let's consider this passage today. What do these verses reveal about Jesus And how does that revelation instruct us in following Him? Well, you could sum up our passage like this. These verses remind us there is a Word that calms the storm, and that Word also calls us to faith. That's the summary for verses 22 to 25 here in Luke chapter 8. There is a Word that calms the storm, and that Word also calls us to faith. So let's consider both sides of that statement together. First of all, in verses 22-24, to we see clearly the Word that calms the storm. The Word that calms the storm. The details of this scene are not hard to follow. And even though Luke's presentation is brief, the action is no less gripping. The disciples, who are experienced fishermen, you remember, set out across the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. But very soon into their journey, they are assailed by a sudden windstorm. Now, I've never been to the Holy Land, but the commentaries do a good job of describing how the geography of the Sea of Galilee makes this area prone uh, to sudden and violent storms. The Sea of Galilee is, is set down below a ring of hills, and that depressed setting makes these sudden storms somewhat frequent and particularly violent. In Mark's Gospel, we also learn that they are making this trip in the evening. So very likely the sun has set, it's getting dark, and the disciples are unable to see even the early warning signs of such a sudden storm. All of that to say, friends, this is a dangerous situation. We know how the story ends, so we might be tempted to downplay the danger, but Luke is clear this is an unnerving moment. The boat is filling with water, which is never a good thing. And it's so bad that even these experienced fishermen are afraid. Think about that. 
Peter and Andrew, James and John, they've spent their entire lives on this lake. They know these waters. They've seen these storms. And yet, these experienced fishermen are afraid at this moment. It's dangerous, you see. The winds are howling and the water is rising. But in the midst of this dangerous storm, friends, the Lord Jesus does two remarkable things. The first is surprising, while the second is stunning. First and surprisingly, Jesus sleeps. Notice again how the passage begins, verse 22. One day He got into the boat with His disciples and He said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, He fell asleep. Friends, that is remarkable. And it's something we should be careful not to overlook. Remember, Mark's Gospel tells us this happens in the evening, at the end of a long day of ministry for Jesus. And what does Jesus do at the end of that long day of ministry? Well, He does what you and I would do. He falls asleep. The hours of teaching catch up to Him. His eyelids get heavy. And as the boat rocks across the rhythms of the lake, Jesus falls asleep. Why is that remarkable? We ask. It's remarkable because it reminds us that Jesus is truly and fully human. He wasn't some automaton that robotically plowed through life on earth merely appearing to be human. He wasn't immune to the regular stuff of life. No, Jesus was truly and fully human. He got tired. He had those moments where you can't keep your eyes open. They get so heavy that you've just got to fall asleep right now. That's remarkable. Friends, this is why the writer to the Hebrews can say that Jesus is able to sympathize with us during our times of weakness. He experienced life in this world as we do. He lived through sudden storms. He got sick to his stomach at times. When he banged his thumb in Joseph's carpenter shop, it hurt. When the days were long, Jesus got sleepy and he needed rest. You see, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our humanness. Not only was Jesus tempted like us, but He also had to live in this world like us. A world full of storms and long days that simply wear you out. In other words, brothers and sisters, what we have in Jesus is not a remote, disinterested Savior. What we have in Jesus is a Savior who can relate to us. One who is like us in every way, yet without sin. What's more, this is why He is able to save us. Because He did take on the weakness of our human nature upon Himself. He took on flesh and blood, including all of that frailty, so He could then shed His blood to save weak and frail sinners like us. And so even though it's small, here in verse 23, we're reminded of all of this good news, all of this grace, as we see Jesus asleep. He's fully human. The second thing Jesus does is more stunning than surprising. In verse 24, Jesus speaks. Notice again what Luke writes, verse 24. And they went and woke Him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Jesus speaks, and amazingly, the storm obeys. 
Jesus speaks and the waves settle down. The winds cease howling and calm returns to the Sea of Galilee. And there's no delay here, friends. Jesus speaks and the storm stops, period, right then. With only His words, Jesus calms the storm. Now at this point, there are all sorts of biblical alarm bells that should be going off in your mind. The scriptural echoes here are astounding. The echo with Genesis 1 is perhaps the quickest to get your attention. On the first page of the Bible, we learn that creation exists because of the Word of God. God speaks and life happens. The world, you see, is subject to the Word, to the speech of God. So when Jesus calms the storm with only His words, we hear the echo of creation. Just as God's Word brought life and order to the formless void of creation, so also Jesus' Word restores order to the chaos of the stormy sea. Jesus exercises creation power. The winds and the waves are subject to Jesus' words. But along with Genesis 1, there are also numerous echoes here with the Psalms. Too many to cite all of them. All through the Psalter, we hear how God commands the waters and the waters obey Him. Psalm 104, for example, is a poetic reflection on God's work at creation. And in verse 7 of that psalm, the waters flee at God's rebuke. Here in Luke chapter 8, what happens? The waters flee at Jesus' rebuke. Jesus does what only the Creator can do. Or for another example, consider Psalm 65, which is a song of praise to God for His abundant provision. The psalm proclaims God's salvation of His people. And in verse 7 of that psalm, God stills the roaring of the seas so that the ends of the earth are in awe at God's power. Here in Luke 8, what happens? Jesus stills the water and the disciples are in fearful awe. Verse 25, again, Jesus does what only the Creator can do. But most striking of all, friends, is Psalm 107. The middle of that psalm celebrates how God delivers those who go out upon the seas. The parallels with Luke 8 are incredibly powerful. The psalm says that storms arise and those who sail in ships are afraid. They call out to Yahweh and He delivers them by calming the storm. He quiets the waves with His power. You see, it's almost a preview of Luke chapter 8, isn't it? The storm rises, the waves begin to crest, and the disciples cry out in fear to Jesus. And Jesus saves them through His powerful Word. He calms the storm and delivers His people. He does what only the Creator can do. Brothers and sisters, I'm stringing together these biblical echoes so that we will hear clearly what the Holy Spirit is revealing in this passage. Be careful then how you hear, remember? All through Scripture, only God has the power to control creation. Here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus of Nazareth controls the creation, which means without doubt that this man is God in the flesh. And the use of only His words is key, friends. This is arguably the main point. With only His words, Jesus commands the creation. No one else in Scripture has done such a thing. Moses struck the Red Sea 
with his staff at God's command. But Moses didn't speak the sea apart. Joshua prayed for the sun to stand still, but Joshua didn't command it to stop. Elijah pleaded with God for fire to come down from heaven, but Elijah didn't control that fire. Jesus commands and it happens. Jesus speaks and it's done. He doesn't need a staff to strike the storm, and He doesn't even pray, though Luke often presents Jesus as praying. No, Jesus speaks as the Creator spoke. And at His Word, the creation responds to Him. This then is God Himself in human flesh. This is God in the boat with the disciples. In fact, notice, brothers and sisters, how the two essential truths of Jesus' nature are present here in this short scene. Jesus sleeps and He speaks. He is fully human. Jesus needed sleep just like we do. And Jesus is fully God. He commands the storm, and the storm obeys. The reason Jesus is able to save His people is on display right now in a little boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is fully human, and He is thus also fully God. He's fully human. He's able to represent us before God, and He is fully divine, meaning He is able to effectively deal with our sin once and for all. It's remarkable, and it's the foundation of our Gospel hope. The One who walked among us, the One who was in the boat during the storm, is none other than the Word made flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in this amazing connection, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, in this amazing connection between His humanity and His divinity, the hope of salvation for sinners like us, friends, is realized in this man Jesus. Even so, how does this revelation of Jesus' glory call us to respond? He is the Word that calms the storm. How does it call us to respond? Remember, these miracles in Luke 8 both reveal and instruct. So what is the response God calls us to in this text? Well, look at verse 25 where we see how the Word that calms the storm is also the Word that calls us to faith. The Word that calls us to faith. The storm at sea is not the only thing to receive Jesus' rebuke in this passage. The disciples are rebuked as well. Notice the Lord's response, verse 25. Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that He commands even winds and water? And they obey Him. So after the storm, the disciples begin to ask the right question, don't they? In, in Luke's Gospel, fear usually indicates the recognition that one has been in the presence of divine power. Which means the disciples are beginning to ask the right question. Who then is this? But it's important to note that the disciples ask this question in response to Jesus' rebuke. Hear it again, verse 25. Jesus said to them, where is your faith? Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not rebuking the disciples for having no faith. He's not calling them unbelievers. Rather, Jesus is asking them, why wasn't your faith put into action? 
Why didn't you exercise your faith in the midst of this crisis? Do you see the difference? Jesus rebukes the disciples not for having no faith, but for failing to put faith into practice. He rebukes them for focusing more on the storm than on Him. And that is a key point for listening to this text, friends. We may be tempted to think that Jesus is being harsh here. It was a dangerous situation after all, so why shouldn't the disciples have been afraid? But that conclusion overlooks what the disciples know to be true. Think of all they have witnessed so far in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has defeated demonic spirits. He has healed diseases. He has cleansed the unclean. He has forgiven sins. And He has even raised the dead. That's only since chapter 4. So yes, the storm is dangerous, but remember who is with you in the boat. Remember who Jesus has shown Himself to be. And instead of looking only at the storm, trust in the One whose power and authority has been so consistently displayed right before your very eyes. You see, that's what Jesus means when He asks, where is your faith? He's essentially telling the disciples, are you so quick to forget who I am? And what I've done? Why do your eyes shift so quickly to see only the storm? Remember who I am. And trust me. And with that rebuke, brothers and sisters, Jesus brings this text home to us. God's Word always calls us to respond. And so there's much that we ought to learn from this rebuke in the boat. The Lord is speaking to us as well here through His Word. What should we take away from this powerful moment? Well, first and most importantly, we should remember that faith must be exercised. Faith in Christ must be put into action. When the storm swooped down upon the disciples, they faced a critical fork in the road, you might say. On the one hand, they could focus on the storm and let fear swallow their hope. Or they could exercise their faith in Christ and find refuge in who Jesus is. Of course, the disciples chose fear at that moment, but don't miss the instruction there is for us. In the moment of crisis, faith in Christ is not our natural response. We tend towards fear. We're like the disciples in that sense. We tend towards fear, which should remind us that faith in Christ has to be put into action. It has to be exercised. It's not our natural response. Trusting in Jesus, you see, does not mean simply sitting on the sidelines of life, twiddling your thumbs, hoping that you will feel close to the Lord. No, friends, faith has to be exercised. Faith has to be put into practice. Listen, this, this is, I'm afraid that this is why we are so often unsettled in times of crisis. It's because we fall prey to the same mistake the disciples made. We focus on the storm and we fail to exercise faith in the Lord. Trust in Christ is not our natural response, you see? It has to be put into action in the moment of trial. It has to be exercised in the crisis. 
So what does that look like, you ask? How do you exercise faith? Quite simply, it looks like reminding and remembering. Reminding and remembering. You remind yourself of what is true about Jesus, how He has all power and authority, how He laid down His life for His people, eternally securing His church so that nothing can ultimately harm us, how even now He is reigning over the universe, orchestrating all things for the good of those who trust Him. You remind yourself of what is true from the Word of God. And then you remember how God has proven faithful in the past. You remember His care for His people throughout Scripture. And you remember that God doesn't change. He's the same God today as He was when He fed Israel with manna in the wilderness. He will feed you and me today. You even remember God's faithfulness in your own life in the past. How He met needs and answered prayers. How He demonstrated Himself to be mighty and good and near to you in times of need. And you remember that God doesn't change. You remember. And here's the point, friends. In those acts of reminding and remembering, what are you doing? You are exercising faith in Christ. You are putting faith into action. That's how faith happens in a crisis. Both reminding and remembering shifts our focus away from ourselves, away from our circumstances, away from the storm, and it puts the focus on the Lord God. Listen, this is one of the surprising things about faith that we are so prone to forget. Faith is actually not about finding strength inside of ourselves to keep believing. Faith is always outward oriented, away from us, and toward God. Why is that? Why is faith always outward oriented? Because faith takes its strength from its object, not from the person who's exercising it. Faith's strength doesn't come from me, but from the one in whom I trust. Which is why reminding and remembering are how you exercise faith. So to just sum it up here, how do I find strength in times of trial? What do I do when the storm crashes? I remind myself of what is true about God and Christ. I remember His faithfulness in the past. And in that exercising of faith, I find strength, not in me, but in God. That's the first lesson from Jesus' rebuke in the boat. Faith in Christ must be exercised, and it's exercised in remembering and in reminding. A second lesson we should learn is this. Faith in Christ is no silver bullet against trials. Faith in Christ is no silver bullet against trials. We ought to be careful not to have this text say something it doesn't say. Faith in Christ would not have prevented the storm from coming. That would be a mistaken conclusion. It's not as though the disciples could have avoided the storm if only they had stronger faith. No, Jesus delivers His disciples through the trial but He doesn't promise to keep them from it. Trials and hardships are coming in this life, friends. And just like the storm in Luke 8, they often swoop down without warning. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, when the storm crashes down, 
it is not a sign that your faith is weak. I want you to hear me on this point. The presence of trials is not a verdict on your spiritual health or lack thereof. The trials will come. They are part of the Christian life. But the point we should take away from Luke 8, the point that you should hear, the one thing that I want you to hear today from Luke 8 is that we do have a refuge for those storms. We do have a reason for hope in the midst of trial. And our hope is this, that there is nothing in this world that can ever stand up against the power of Jesus Christ. He is the Word who commands the storm. And therefore, He is the Word who is worthy of your trust. You can bank your life on this man Jesus. And you can do so with confidence knowing that nothing will ever snatch you from His hand. Friends, think of it as an exercise of Gospel logic that leads to faith. I'm serious here. Work out the reasoning in your own mind. Take the reasoning of Luke 8 and work it out for your own life. If Christ can command the winds and the waves, then He can surely sustain and protect me in times of need. If He can command the creation, then He can control the storms in my life. Work it out and exercise your faith. The storms will come, brothers and sisters, but praise God, the storm cannot overcome the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we embrace that reality, friends, when we learn by faith to see the One who is always in the boat with us during the storm, then we will find our hearts settled rather than unsettled in the face of trial. I'll confess to you, this is hard for me to do. Some of you know this, but I am by nature an anxious person. I am often unsettled by trials. And they don't have to be significant. They can be small. And I am often unsettled. But I praise God that there is an answer for anxious hearts like mine. And the answer is the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I remind myself and I remember and I encourage you to do the same. As we close this morning, I want to share with you a short selection from a sermon I read this week. I don't often read you things in my sermons, but I was extremely encouraged by this. So I want to read this short selection to you. The sermon is entitled, God's Sustaining Presence. And it's by a theologian named John Webster, who is now with the Lord. The sermon was on Psalm 121, but, but I found this selection very fitting for our passage in Luke chapter 8. Webster describes how we can cultivate trust in God's present help. Or to use the language that I've been using today, this selection describes how we can exercise faith. This is what he writes, quote, God will watch us as we journey. God will keep us. It's simple enough. But to get to those affirmations, we have to climb over a lot of rubble inside of ourselves. We have to learn what is extraordinarily hard for us to learn. Not to listen to our fears. Not to be tossed around by whatever comes across our path. Not to give credence to the lies that God has fallen asleep or just given up protecting us. 
Those things take a lifetime to learn for most of us. But learning them, because learning them involves overcoming some of our most basic drives and desires and foolishness. But it's only as we learn those things that we begin to live with a measure of Christian composure. Christian composure is a very particular thing, however. It is an equanimity that is given to us, which we don't make up from our own resources. It is given to us as we make our confession of the Lordship of God, as we learn to praise God, how to trust the Gospel, how to see all things in light of God's mercy, and how to keep our hearts by God's promises. End quote. Christian composure. That's what Jesus is calling us to here in Luke 8. It's the exercise of faith. It's the response of a settled heart that is exercising faith in the Lordship of Christ. Christian composure. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that God would make us a community of believers that is marked by this Christian composure, rooted in faith, looking to our sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ. And as the world around us begins to scramble for something solid in this present storm, may we be steady in faith and therefore ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who controls the creation with His Word because He is Himself the Creator, taken on human flesh for us and for our salvation, like us in every way, yet without sin. Father, remind us of what is true about Jesus and help us to remember how You have delivered Your people in the past. Father, and in that reminding and in remembering, may we find our faith in You renewed, strengthened. And may through the exercise of that faith, God, may You hold us steady so that we might be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us to the world around us. We pray, God, all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.